Hey, everyone. I'm Louisa Rorschach. And I am Brittany Tuft. And this is That 70s Showdown. Five, six, seven, eight. Hanging out. Dun, 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 dun. Down the street. Dun, 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 dun. The same old thing. Dun, 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 dun. We did last week. Dun, 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 dun. Not a thing to do. But talk to Here we are. It's episode one of this podcast. It is Thursday, August 23rd, 2018. And it is today the 20th anniversary of the series premiere of That 70s Show. And so we're making a podcast about it. It's a thing that we love and we want to talk about it and share our love for that show with you all. In this podcast, we'll be talking about a lot of different topics, all centering around what we see in the episodes. We're going episode by episode and just talking about every single one and really examining the show that we love through a critical lens, the lens of social issues, the lens of historical context, the lens of just our senses of humor. And we're going to kind of rip it apart in places where it is deeply, deeply problematic. Our intention is to use our modern understanding of the world in 2018 to look at something made 20 years ago in 1998, about a time 20 years before that in 1976 and see if it holds up. See if what was relevant in the 70s is still relevant now, if the way that something was portrayed in the 90s is still acceptable today. And just really get into the nitty-gritty about this show. Um, and so like, in the process of deciding how to make this podcast, because neither of us have ever done this before, <laughs> where I was thinking about other podcasts that I listen to, which honestly are not that many. I listen to NPR's Up First for my daily dose of morning news, and I promise they're not paying me to say that, but like shout out in case they want to. And I also listen to You Must Remember This, which is this super nerdy deep dive into the golden age of film, and because I'm a huge dork. <laughs> but I think the most influential podcast in inspiring me to make this show and how to do it really is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And what the hosts, Casper and Vanessa, do is read Harry Potter as if it were the Bible or the Torah or some other sacred text. And they're not saying that, like, Harry Potter is God. They're just treating the book as if you sacred. can... It's, it's a sacred thing. Like, you can learn things from it. And if you examine it as closely and as thoughtfully as people spend lifetimes examining and religious studying... Religious and holy books. Religious and holy texts, that you can learn a lot and receive a lot and grow a lot from the way that you think about Harry Potter. That's interesting. I'm not saying we need to do that about that 70s show. I don't think it's that deep, but one element I am going to poach from their podcast is the 30-second recap. Um, and so at the beginning of each of their podcasts, they sort of compete for who can do the best 30-second recap. I don't know if we need to compete, except it is a showdown. <laughs> <laughs> we just start jousting. <laughs> of like, who can do the encapsulate what happens in this episode the best in 30 seconds? Do you want to try that? And then our, our listeners can vote on who did it best. All right, you're going to win, but let's that's do what they That's what they do on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Okay, <laughs> okay so. Oh, Ooh. you're stop watching this. This is impressive. Yeah, because you have to do it in 30 seconds. Otherwise, it's not valid. You want to go first or should I? All right. Hang on, let me, get the, let me get the timer ready. I'll count you in in three, two, 
One. Most of getting in basement, get beers, kitties pizza rolls, found beers, midges tits, Bob's hair, Vista Cruiser, got beers, yay. Concert, ah, uh, Jackie sucks. Weed, but we got the Vista Cruiser. Parent sex, ill, yay. Concert, car dies, no yay. Gay mechanic gets ticks, everyone's safe. Who wouldn't want to be a part of this friends group? So you did that in 18 seconds. I do want to say that in the original show that I am mentioning, they don't have notes. Um, but I guess for our first one, we're allowed to yeah, do that. Yeah, we're totally allowed to do We're totally allowed. We'll, we'll get to the point where we're good enough to do it without notes. Let's see if I can do as well as you can. I probably can. I'm real chatty. <laughs> And a three, two, one, go. So we open up to the basement. We meet the core gang. It's Eric and it's Kelso and it's Donna and the Hyde. And they're all trying to pressure Eric into stealing beer, beer from his parents' party. So he goes upstairs and we meet all the parents. We meet his parents, Kitty and Red. We meet Donna's parents, Midge and Bob. Bob is a terrible perm. It's atrocious. We also then meet Jackie and she totally sucks. She's not invited to the Todd Rundgren concert. We meet Fez. He's foreign and really naive. We're introduced to the circle where they smoke up a lot of weed. Um, Eric gets a lecture while totally stoned, but he gets the car. The kids go to the concert. The battery dies. They end up trading the tickets with the mechanic and Jackie and Kelso have to stay behind. Later on the hood of the car, Donnie kisses Eric. And it's done. Oh, God. That was hard. But I don't think you said that Donnie kisses Eric. I didn't. You're right. That's the one part that I forgot. So there you go. I'm going to go ahead and say that I win. All right. That's no vote. No (laughs) vote. Louise, that's it. She she voted and you guys lost and I lost. (laughs) Well, but anyway, I think that covers... Did we forget anything other than you forgetting the most important part that Donnie kisses Eric? Actually, yeah, we did. Um, we forgot to pick up on when Red says that his hours are cut from the store at his job. Oh, yeah. No, it's at the factory. At the, the factory. Store. You're right. He's not even at the store yet. It's his hours at the yet. factory. At the factory, get cut right. Back. And we also forgot to mention that we are introduced to a really important character The Hub. Oh, my God. How did we possibly forget that? The Hub is one of those characters, though, that gets a severe glow up. Re- or is it a glow down? Because in episode one, there are like seven pinball machines. And later on in the show, it's just a bunch of tables and only one pinball machine. So is that a glow up? I don't think so. Maybe not. But it's there. It's there since episode one. It is an original member of the Day one. Day one homie. Uh, The only other thing I would say is that I feel like um, an important part, which I wanted to include in on my notes, my cheat sheet, um, was that it's the first time that they reference Lori. Oh, yeah. And they're like, Lori says that we shouldn't be alone together. So I feel like that's like the first time that you get a glimpse into what our theme is, that relationship. Relationship. You know, like, oh, uh, they're, they're two horny teenagers who shouldn't be alone together. Yes. I feel like that is just the theme of all of being a teenager yeah. across the entire universe. Right. Horniness <laughs> is the theme of teenagehood. <laughs> Facts. Um, but, yeah, relationships. So... The job of a pilot episode is to establish relationships and also what the problems are. And I know this because I am writing, and by writing I mean seriously neglecting a pilot of my own. <laughs> One day I'll, I'll write this thing. <laughs> Honestly, though. One day I'll write it. You'll but anyway. Eventually. So, but that, that's, that really is the point of a pilot episode. You need to lay out all the relationships, like who knows who, how do they interact, and what are the potential problems that can come out of these interactions. And clearly, this pilot did a very good job because it, it went did. on for eight seasons. Right. Um, so the relationships that we see in this episode... Are, they're all so interesting, and the first one that's the most important are just the dynamics of the game, of the gang. Right. And that's what we open up into. We open up seeing Eric sitting in a chair. It establishes there's not only just one main character as well. I feel yeah. like you're led to believe Eric is the main character. Because it all happens in his house. But <laughs> really, they all own that. I feel like it's like they all just have like their own keys. Like They're all always there, whether he's there or not. Like Hyde's living there. Like Everything is just like eventually not. Yeah. But yeah. But we just, we learn about their interactions. So 
Hyde starts out right away as being like the peer pressure. Right. Hyde's immediately the bad influence of the 1970s into rock and roll music, which like wasn't new at all. It's not what I'm saying, but definitely new in media waves. Yeah. I feel like it's cool that they zeroed in that there was someone who wasn't like, you know, I'm going to go disco dancing in bell bottoms and platforms. Thank God. But also for Point Place, Wisconsin. Is that a real place? I don't think so. I think it's no, fictional. No, I think Point Place is made up. Fictional. But yeah. like it, it it's dra- supposed to represent, though, any town. Any town in America that's not in a major metropolitan area. Right. So Can't relate. <laughs> As two solid born and raised New Yorkers, I have no Cannot clue. relate. <laughs> At all. Please fix the MTA. Another important relationship, I think, is also the dynamic between Eric and his parents. Oh, absolutely. I kind of feel like they lead you to believe that the Foremans are more naive than they are. Yeah. But at the same time, like, they 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 are very naive, but... I mean, they clarify that. Like, so as soon as Eric does get the car and they're all loaded up in the car and, like, Donna is glammed out. She's wearing a little crop top. Little or a, a tie top, but like it's all tied up, yeah. and her like boobies are looking great. She's wearing makeup, her hair is did. She's looking good, Henny. As soon as they're about to roll out, Red's like, "Oh, by the way, don't go out of town." And then we see, the, obviously, the kids do out of town. But then Red is sitting on the couch reading a newspaper, and like Kitty's sitting on the couch, and he's like, "Oh yeah, they went out of town because I told them not to." So they're not as naive, right? It's more like so they're playing into it for the kids. But I feel like um, you get a good gist that, like most parents, they're kind of in control. Yeah, like they know what their kids are up to, and I think that's very realistic. I feel like that's like some shit my dad would pull as well. Except for the part where Eric did take the beers. Yeah. Kitty was like, oh, honey, while you're taking those beers, take these as well and put them right. in the fridge. And he's like, oh, sure, he just, mom. That's the, one of the funniest parts, him <laughs> just running down the stairs. With all this beer. <laughs> uh, but then, like, as we were getting into the parents' marriages, we definitely get a little taste of what those marriages are like. We see what Bob and Midge yeah. are a little bit about. I feel like Bob and Midge are non-stereotypically 70s couple because although Midge is portrayed as a little slow and dense, she kind of, like, just by choosing Bob's hairstyle, can kind of tell that she's who's holding the reins in the house. However, in the Foreman household, like, Kitty's opinion is valued and stuff, but Red is the one who's like, this is going in your ass. Like, that's what's happening. Like, yeah. 100%. But then also, I like... No no teenager or even young adult or even me likes to think about their parents being intimate. Boning. <laughs> Boning. <laughs> Gotta get down, come around. All right. Mom, just tell me no. Actually, don't sing that song. R. Kelly's canceled. He is. No, he's like totally canceled. You're right. Yeah. Well, back on topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, very few people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scratch that. Start that sentence again. People frequently think it's unpleasant to consider their parents being intimate, and I think all of the characters in that 70s show would be solidly in that camp, and we do get yeah. evidence of that later when Eric walks in on a little sign of sign. Right. <laughs> Ooh, but it has to be emotionally scarring on several different be. levels. But it also, it's kind of refreshing now for me as an adult to... Yeah, that I get. The different concept of essentially like seeing them as people rather than as parents. people instead of parents, that as soon as the kids are out of town, Red and Kitty... Bunnies. They just run upstairs. Like, let's get to it. Like, he's taking those steps two at a time. He doesn't even, like, fold the newspaper to put it back down. No, and, like, that's... I think that's actually really great that they show the fullness of that relationship. That parents are humans. I think that's important. I feel like on a lot of shows centered around kids, no matter what show, as far as you go back, like, the parents don't have their own personalities outside of their kids, and I think that's bullshit. Absolutely. Like, 
you having kids obviously changes your life by a lot, but I don't think it changes it to the point in which like your sex organs shut off <laughs> or cease to exist, right, evaporate. Like, <laughs> that's not how this works. And so I think that's that's actually a healthy and happy representation of a married couple. Yeah. And we'll get we'll see more of like a realistic representation of a married couple when we talk more about Bob and Midge in later episodes when like drama starts to go down. Right. But I just I think it is interesting that I want to talk more about that, and we'll talk more about that in later episodes as we learn more about their relationship and their dynamic. Soup's interesting. Uh, but then another relationship, boy-girl, is Kelso and Jackie. Oh, you just rolled your eyes. I did. Like, Kelso <laughs> and Jackie are, like, such a stereotypical couple, but he doesn't have a varsity jacket on. That's really all that I feel like it's missing, and I feel like it's because it's the 70s and he's a burnout that he doesn't have the varsity jacket on. But it's like it's so common for all of these heterosexual couples on TV to like fucking hate each other, but still be together. But yeah, in real life, like it's not like that. Like no. it's not an. I hope not. Right, and if it is, you should. Ladies, you should gentlemen, leave. I don't care if it's a heterosexual, homosexual, any kind of relationship. If you hate being with that person, leave that. Yeah. Damn, Jackie, I can't change the weather. Um, <laughs> Damn, Jackie. But um, I also think there's, like, a really innocent vibe to their relationship as well. Yeah. Just, like, the bickering and, like, the... Like, and when I say innocent, I don't mean, like... I mean, like, childlike. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such first a great... Love, it's, it's so yes. clearly a first love. They right. have no idea what they're doing. And it's so clearly a naive, young teenager thing. Like, it's... Well, at least it is that way for Jackie. Is it that way for Kelso? I feel like Kelso is, like, permanently brain damaged. Like, his mom rode horseback to the day he was born or something. Like, I can't really, you know, like, not really sure how to answer that question. But um, I do because he's so immature, you know? And I feel like it's also really funny because Mila Kunis was so much younger than Ashton Kutcher. And you can kind of see throughout their relationship as the, the more that they film it that boys really do mature slower than girls. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, even just, like, the pitch of her voice right. changes. Michael! In the eight seasons. Right. And it's not that she's putting on a voice. No, in it's episode essentially like, that she just she's, became... She's actually physically right. growing. She went from a child to a teenager. Yeah, she was actually an adult. She started when she was 15. She lied right. to get on set. She said she was 17, right? Or something like that. Yeah. But like, the point was she was a little younger than she actually she said she was. She was younger than 15, I think, too. I think no, she no, was, no, like, 14, she, wasn't she? I mean, we could Google this. We could be informed. We'll get back to you on that. But getting back to, like, their relationship, she does seem to be so genuine in such an innocent and first love kind of way. Right. When they're not at the concert because they had to trade the tickets and they're in the back of the car and they're making out, she's like, stop, stop, stop. This isn't working. You're not happy. You're not enjoying being here with me. Which, like, I guess that's a little good for you, Jackie, for noticing that your partner's not being responsive. Right. And is not enjoying the moment of being with you. Right. That's, like, actually very mature for, I guess she's supposed to be in maybe 10th grade because she's a year younger than all of them. I don't. So at 15. At 15 years old. She figured that out, but right. then he's like, "No, no, no! I want to be here." So she, but then she allows immediately herself, backtracks. She's like, okay. Oh, "Okay, then I won't break up with you, right? Because this means that all you need is me. You don't need your friends. You don't need right. your music. You don't need any other interests. All you're interested in is me." So it's it's sort of bopping back and forth between you kind of do a mature get the understanding, gist but also of how unhealthy and unbalanced the relationship is can be. In a sense, yeah. yeah. Like, he even, also, like, lets his friend shit on her. Yeah. That's, like, rule number one, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it just tells us about, and again, this is the pilot. You're supposed to 
really give me a sense of what each character is. If you're writing this pilot, right, give and me you a sense definitely of what each get an exaggerated is. sense as well, which yeah. I feel like you kind of have to do for a pilot too. Like mm-hmm. I feel like the characters mellow out besides Topher Grace, who just mm-hmm. becomes fucking whinier as the show goes on. <laughs> but like, like Jackie will stay like, oh, it's all about me. But like me, her me, voice me. isn't as shrill Rating. or like like her voice goes through me like fucking nails on a chalkboard in the first episode when she says Michael like, like six oh. times in one sentence I'm like ah. I think it's supposed to though it is that's, that's that's what they're driving home and I feel like it was good for test audiences for a pilot like that's yeah, perfect like you 100%. get what this character is about and without get, having to give her and you get what Kelso's about he's after that poontang like he's like I'm totally gonna break up with her but then he's making out with her because he can't stop because she's right. pretty and then he's gonna say whatever she wants him to say because they're making out in the back of a car right like, I'll say whatever we have to say to end this conversation so we can get back to the making Continue out. to do what we're doing. And right. that, if that is not his essential goal in life, I don't know what is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's them. Uh, but then my favorite is the gay relationship that's in this episode of the mechanic is like, all right, I'll trade you a new car battery. When the car breaks down, I'll trade you a new car battery for two of your tickets. And then later at the show, Fez says, oh, the mechanic's date is a guy. And Jack, or who is it? It's Donna. It's like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm okay with it. And Eric says, we're so cool for being okay with it. Okay, that's not cool. Like, I feel like you shouldn't suck your own dick for approving of men sucking dick. But um, (laughs) I do think that in 1998, that's really important. And I don't actually even think that the writers had that intention or thought of how important that is for representation. Because think of what happened to Ellen in the 90s. You know what I mean? Like, so for them to start off on that base, I think is really fun. In episode one, even though neither of these characters, neither the mechanic nor his boyfriend, come back at all. And there is a little bit of... They do play into some stereotypes of what gay men are like. Yeah. Of I'm going to the bathroom. Kevin, are you coming? And it's like, but that's also riffing on a joke from earlier in the episode. Right. But just to have a gay couple, even peripherally, in the first episode of a show. And it is kind of a plot line because the concert is what this entire episode's about. And yeah. Those two gay guys go to that concert together. And that the main characters, we find out right away, the main characters do not care. Right. I, and that's an important... I think also, though, when the time of what they're shooting in the 1970s, that is a very important distinction to make of your characters immediately. Yes. Because you're either, you know, like, doing blow with John Travolta at Studio 54 and having the time of your life and doing whatever, or, you know, you're shunning people because the devil's music and this and that. So I feel like it was really cool that off the bat they were like, these kids smoke weed recreationally. Mm-hmm. These kids love music and, you know, lie to their parents to go to concerts and they're cool with gay marriage. Sex not and marriage, drugs. but relationships. You know, Sex like, and drugs and rock and roll. Right. Like it's that's, is that not what teenage, being a teenager is all about? And that's great. And yeah, and so showing that in the 70s is super important, but then writing that and filming that in the 90s, as you were saying, what was going on with the Ellen show in those years. Even and just think of just, how she was completely... It's like the year she came out. Didn't she come out in 1998? I'm pretty sure it's either 98 or 99. It's right before the millennium. You know what I mean? Like right before the change. We didn't hear from Ellen until that like great comedy skit that she did came out Mm -hmm. with the one with the fruit on the bottom, like the yogurt. That like which is one of Ellen's best. But like she was completely shunned. And but I also feel like there's a huge difference because I don't think they would have portrayed lesbians on the show without making them super sexy. And they actually joke about that all the time. All like, the time. Girls, like Jackie and Jackie Donna, and take Donna. off your shirt and mud wrestle. Like, yeah. They do make fun of that. You're right. But 
I still, when I think and very about, important though, still, I'm not taking away when, from. When I, when I think about other sitcoms of the era, the first thing that comes to mind is Friends. When we're talking about a group of Friends, obviously Friends takes place in the 90s and they're but I feel five like to they ten years older than the characters. a lesbian relationship because it's easier to make fun of at that it's point because no of. one takes lesbian seriously. No one takes lesbian seriously mm-hmm. and Ross was such a freaking homophobe. He spends the entire show being worried that his son is going to be gay. I think the only thing that concerns me, though, about that show, and then we'll totally go back on track, is how much Susan thinks that she has control over a baby that she had no presence in making. <laughs> like, has anyone ever, like, even fucking thought of that? Like, Ross is a homophobe, but at the same time, like, why is Susan be quiet? Like, please, this is not quiet. The child. You're a step parent. <sighs> But I do think that the representation was super important for that 70s show, not only for the 70s, because, you know, that was a time, that's before the AIDS crisis, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's right before things got really bad for the Moes. But things are better than ever for them right now. It gets better. It does. Things just keep getting better. Now, we're going to talk about something a little lighter than AIDS. Louisa is going to drop some knowledge on us in this week's music break. So, in this episode, the main issue is how the gang is going to get to the Todd Rundgren concert. So, it's only appropriate that I talk about him and his music for our break. I think one of my first introductions to Todd Rundgren was at my fourth grade birthday party. It was April of 1999, and the theme of my party was the 60s. And for my birthday, I had just received my first boombox, and it had a CD player. My mom had also just gotten herself the four-disc box set of Nuggets, original artifacts from the first psychedelic era, 1964 to 1968. A classic. <laughs> it is. I mean, it was an anthology of American garage punk and psychedelia that was actually first released on vinyl in 1972. So it made perfect sense that we would play those CDs for musical chairs or freeze dance game or some other bullshit. But one of the songs on that first disc that I totally loved and became low-key obsessed with was Open My Eyes by a band named Naz. I had no context of who sang it, because when you're 10, you don't really give a shit. But Naz was the first band that Todd Rundgren formed while living in Philadelphia, and it's what brought him into the mainstream. Dorky side tangent, Naz's first concert was in 1967, opening for The Doors, which I think is really freaking legendary. And coincidentally, at the same time in 67, there was another band in Philly called Naz. But they only recorded one song before moving to L.A. and becoming Alice Cooper. Which like that's so different and so crazy. What I a have a hard time like of happenings. You know? I have a hard time like wrapping, wrapping my head, your around, head that. around that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but um, anyway, so but later, much later, when Rundgren was playing as Todd Rundgren and the Hello People, he went on tour with Alice Cooper and opened for them in multiple cities in 1972. So it just like you can fall down that rabbit hole on Wikipedia if you want to. I sure as shit did. Anyway. Open My Eyes starts with four chords rhythmically played in an electric organ, and then the hi-hat hits and the bass kicks come in, followed by a buzz guitar riff and more electric organ. It just instantly grabs you. The vocals are clean and singable. There are some sweet harmonies here and there, and the guitar wails a bit during the bridge. It's just just awesome. I bring this up because the gang in Point Place had undoubtedly heard this song. All of the characters would have been about 9 or 10 when Open My Eyes single dropped, and I bet money that young Donna rocked around her room in her underwear to it. Hell yeah. 
That 70s show starts in May of 76, and by that time, Todd Rundgren was already with his next band, Utopia, but his hit solo singles from when he was in between groups were still playing, one of them being the song that Jackie sings really poorly, and she also gets his name wrong. She calls him Todd Grunderman, but that song is Hello, It's Me, which was the first original song that Rundgren ever wrote. He first recorded it with Naz in 1968 and then re-recorded it and solo released it on his 72 double LP, Something Anything. And that LP was kind of an epic creation because he wrote, played, sang, engineered, and produced everything on three of the four sides of the album, which that's, that's a lot of work. I don't think Beyonce even does that. I'm so- sorry. Sorry, Beyonce. sorry, Bayhive. Don't doubt Beyonce. <laughs> She's great. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to doubt the queen. But anyway, so, but Hello, It's Me, the, re- the re-recording of it that he made solo, when it dropped as a single in 73, it got to number five on Billboard Hot 100. So like, even teeny boppers like Jackie definitely would have heard it. Um, another reason that the gang would have known about Todd Rundgren was because he was in a long-term on-again, off-again relationship with B.B. Buell, who was Playboy Magazine's November 1974 Playmate of the Month. Golf clap, golf clap. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But Kelso would definitely have known her because, you know. For sure. No, yeah. We know who Kelso is and how he is. As he is as a human being. But he, being. he would have known her and he would have been very jealous that some uggo musician was getting to see her naughty bits on the regular. Not that Todd Rundgren's ugly. He's just not as pretty as Kelso thinks he is. But you know who else got to see B.B. Buell's naughty bits? A lot of people. <laughs> Only a slew of the 60s and 70s hardest rockers. She was dating Mick Jagger, Iggy Pop, David Bowie, Elvis Costello, Jimmy Page. He's from Led Zeppelin, if you idiots don't know. And Steven Tyler. And that last one is the most relevant because her fling with him while she was dating Rundgren resulted in a pregnancy that Todd took responsibility for, even though he knew he wasn't the father. That child? None other than Liv Tyler, who was born and raised as Liv Rundgren until she was nine years old. So even though he and B.B. Buell broke up soon after Liv was born, Rundgren stayed committed as a father to a child that wasn't even biologically his, all while slaying the airwaves year after year. So yeah, that's the musical tea. Todd Rundgren is not only a bomb musician and producer, but also a stand-up guy who Liv Tyler still considers her dad. Listeners can check out the songs mentioned here and a few bonus tracks on our Spotify playlist, That 70s Showdown. So our next segment uh, is something that we're going to do every single episode. Every single show, reoccurring, not stopping. Modern woke or 70s joke. (laughs) And so this is a segment in which we are going to discuss just something that's going on and how do we feel about it and how does the way it's portrayed in the 90s measure up to what it actually was like in the 70s and also is it still acceptable today in the 21st century? I don't know. We'll find out. So the thing we're going to talk about in this episode is women's place. Right. Women's place in the home, women's place in relationships, just women's place in the episode. So... You go first. Immediately as this starts, and your first introduction to women, number one, is you get Donna, who's a guy's guy. You know, she's not like other girls. That's why she's hanging out with the three guys in the basement, but it isn't like that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Right? That, she's, like, she's wearing overalls. You're not getting, like, the thing that she's being gangbanged or anything. No. But at the same time, you're understanding that she is a part of a penis posse. A hundred percent. And she's also not wearing, like, feminine clothes. Right. She's wearing overalls. She's, and she's always been very, like... 
that's why I think at the end of the show, at that episode rather, it's so crazy to see her in makeup and stuff is because she's, I don't even want to say tomboy because she isn't. She's just like, she's into grunge and she doesn't care. Mm-hmm. She's not going to wear makeup to go sit and smoke weed in Eric Foreman's basement, which I fucking respect the hell out of because me either. But I feel like then you get such a weird contrast because the second woman that you see is Kitty and she's running around the kitchen like her fucking pussy's on fire. <laughs> like she's literally just like <laughs> causing pizza rolls, pizza rolls, hot dogs, Vienna sausages. Like she's just running around like being a good hostess and I feel like those are two on the opposite ends of the spectrum. 100%. And then somewhere in between like you you meet fucking Donna's mom who's yeah, just like, she, hey I have no I have no brain in my head. And all you, like it's the camera and I know it's supposed to be POV because that's part of the humor of like watching Eric run through the party trying to steal beer but the POV is also critical in that it zooms in on Midge's boobs. Before even you don't even see her You don't even know her hair color before you see her breasts. Her right. And it's like oh okay I understand that she's the hot mom, which, like, to be honest, that may or may not be one of my goals in life. I'd love to be the hot mom. The hot mom, but the, I guess, like, you can be hot and not stupid, too, though. I feel like that's important. I do. I, yes. I want to break that glass ceiling. Yeah. Like, you can, you know, be the cool mom without, you know, having Losing cells. negative points on your SATs. Yeah. Oh. Don't you just get 200 points for writing your name? Right. Oh. <laughs> So Midge is shown just as a sex object right, right. away. Not even clever. She's. The I one do like though that they made Kitty have a brain. Yes. Kitty's quips and remark, like which you'll definitely see more throughout the series. But I love that Kitty isn't just like a sit at home like, and they kind of do make her that out at first. But Kitty kind of finds a voice, and I really I love that. Mm-hmm. She's one of my favorite characters on the She's show. She's wonderful. I, think. I kind of want to be a mom like her, but just like hotter. But a little also- less traditional. But I totally know what the fuck you're saying. Like I get it. Yeah. Yes. She's great. She's goals. And then the last girl that we really talk about and see is Jackie. <sighs> and there's, we meet Jackie on the couch with Kelso and Donna and Eric. And Donna and Eric are, everyone's watching the Brady Bunch, but Donna, there's no sound. Donna and Eric are just like making up the words. And Jackie right away is like, what are we doing? I don't get it. This isn't funny. Right. I just want to watch the show. And that right away paints her as sort of being basic. Like, she's not clever enough to find making up words. Right, she's like, not smart enough to get a game like that. She's not, or, or just even sophisticated enough to find it funny. Right, like it's, she doesn't get the clever humor of yes. it. Yes, and it's basic of her to like the Brady Bunch. I think everyone now can agree, and I think even then agree that the Brady oh, Bunch I was think, a lame right. show. I mean, it was, but at the same time, it was very popular. But I also feel like that's the huge problem with the character of Jackie. Like, she isn't like like she, because mm-hmm. she's selfish. She hates fat people. She she's hates vain. poor people. Like, you know, like she probably isn't a great person. But I feel like they make it so that she's such like a typical girl, and they make that seem like a bad thing. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. Like obviously her vanity is a bad thing, but I don't think that Jackie wanting to watch the Brady Bunch, even if it is basic, is bad. Yeah. Why is basic bad? So I guess that that is really that's, that's a not... recurring theme throughout every decade, apparently. Though. Yeah. So it's. 70s joke and a modern joke. Like it's, it's a yeah. joke. Like we shouldn't think that teenage girls are a joke. Why are right. not? And that's, why are that's a constant not thing. Anything seriously? that teenage girls like, Twilight, 
Justin One Bieber. Direction, Justin Bieber, f- fucking Hannah Montana, all this stuff. It's belittled because it's like, oh, well, these little teenage girls like this. And it's like, well, Therefore, little teenage girls make real. up most of the consumer percentage of the of, of especially America. Like, their opinion clearly fucking matters. What, the, these five dudes in One Direction would not have a pot to piss in if teenage girls were not throwing themselves at them. Facts. The Brady Bunch probably wouldn't have had such a big thing if teenage girls who were, quote, basic, unquote, didn't have a Marsha Brady to look up to, you know, mm-hmm. and it's also a show parents fucking loved. I think making Jackie so, like, trying to write her off that she's lame because she likes things that are unique to girls is, that's fucking lame. That's fucking lame. It's so, fucking lame. The, p- the way that we're going to wrap up this segment of Modern Woke or 70s Joke is we uh, sort of rate this issue, um, whatever the issue is, on a scale of one to Danny Masterson. How problematic is it? And before people freak out, or maybe you've been waiting for us to talk about this, how problematic is Danny Masterson himself? Take it away, Britt. Okay, so to give you a hint, if we were going to rate Danny Masterson on the Danny Masterson scale, he would probably be about 12 Danny Mastersons. Damn. So to break off this for you, he's accused of rape in 2004. However, it happened the year before. So, okay. But this girl was in her statute of limitations to report it. So she reports it to the LAPD. Now, the thing to remember, I guess I should have included this in the beginning. So this is while the show is still recording. Yeah, this is early two thousands. The show went for eight seasons yes. from nineteen ninety eight to two thousand six. This is the prime of the show. So oh hot damn. So now keep in mind this never came out during the prime of the show. Four girls it was three or four girls, um, four women, three were Scientologists. Is he a Scientologist? Yes. Oh. So those three can't make oh, a and claim. So is so is Laura Prepon. Right, but those three can't make a claim against him. Why? Because you're not allowed to talk badly about other people within Scientology unless you are ratting out what they're doing that is anti Scientology to your higher ups. But rape is not anti Scientology. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right, to clarify. So Scientology, the Scientologists who found out about this case sent fifty affidavits to the LAPD of people rebuking her claims. What? So now she's, keep in mind, she's the only woman who's not a Scientologist, so she's the only one that spoke up. So she woke up after passing out, and she doesn't remember how that she passed out. She thinks that something was put in her drink, struggled with Danny Masterson, and he choked her out until what? she passed back out and then finished. I'm, like, throwing up right now. I'm right. sorry that there's an audio of me gagging. Um. So, you what? know, her going to the police and her, you know... Trying to report that Scientology don't fuck with that BS, honey, because like they, the file vanished. Stop. So what, like, and it's very well known in a sense that the LAPD, especially in Hollywood, is working in a sense. That's what many people think with a famous Scientologist. Like if you and I are Scientologists and we go out and we rape somebody, like they're going to be like, oh, we're feeding you to the winds. However, John Travolta, Danny Masterson, the people who are making their religion big by... Yeah. Their star status are very protected. So a lot of people are saying uh, the detective left mm-hmm. his file on the desk, went home, came back the next morning, and it's fucking gone. The security footage was deleted, like all of this shit. Like it's fucking Whoa. wild. Wait. Yeah. In the police station. What? So, and my thing is, like, unless the police are, you know, being paid off by somebody, why would they, why would they do that? That's nuts. I'm not even done. So honestly, I pause. I would suggest that there needs to be like a true crimes episode about this, but we all know it wouldn't even be greenlit because this is all happening in Hollywood. What? Um, 
so this file vanished. So it's gone from police custody. The district attorney now turns around and is like, great, I'm going to reconstruct the file myself. (laughs) (laughs) Who is this DA? I want to meet this Um, DA. Funny enough, his last name is Mueller. (laughs) Get out! Not the same one, not to be confused, but you know what? I'm not even going to get into that. Um, Are they related? Must Must be in the family. So law enforcement continues to say that the evidence is fucking overwhelming. So do you want to hear some of this evidence that is included in on Spill this tea. Spill this tea. Evidence includes audio tapes of admittance. By him? Yeah. Of him talking to other people about how are we going to make it go away. Um, email from higher up Scientologists. Like, I forget the guy's name. His wife disappeared. He's got Ron, Rob, something like that. He runs the entire thing. The people who work below Ronald him. Hubbard. Right. Okay. So those people that work below him are the people who are responsible for, like, you know, capturing bad Scientologists and throwing them into prison camps and oh, shit like no. that. <laughs> so um, emails from them, like. L. Ron Hubbard. Is that his name? Ah, whatever. Some, something like that. But um, them emailing the cops to be like, well, what do we have to do to make this go away? emailing the victims and being like, well, are you sure that's really what happened? I think you're remembering it wrong. I think it really happened like this. The best part, the best part is the handwritten letter from Masterson threatening her life. Get the fuck out. That's why they stole the file, though. Um, oh and obviously God. the big part was this, is this all surfaced recently. And Netflix didn't take action against Danny Masterson right away. And neither did Ashton Kutcher. And what drives me fucking nuts about that is he'll be crying at the fucking UN about child trafficking and people being raped against their will and being sold for sex slavery, but, like, you're harboring a rapist in your own, in your own fucking home. You created the show on Netflix and... The you, ranch. We're talking right, about the ranch. the ranch. And you, cre- you included Danny Masterson in it, kind of knowing that this happened. There's no fucking way that you didn't know while you were on set that police were investigating him for rape. And plus, at that point, when the ranch had come out, these accusations had come out as well because the Me Too movement had been... So Netflix really didn't do anything, but keep in mind they had just fired Kevin Spacey yeah. off of... Um, what's the name of that show? The one... It used to be uh, British, but then the one about the American president version, and yeah. Robin Wright is in it, and she's Bay, and I haven't watched a single episode. <laughs> Because Kevin Spacey sucks. We know um, what we're talking about. Yeah, but so he was fired immediately. But Danny Masterson, these came out, and they didn't. They didn't take any action until people were fucking rioting. People were like, "I'm canceling my Netflix account." Like, you not only did you hire the writers and the producers and everything else. Like, this is a Netflix show. This didn't air on ABC, and you picked up like the leftover mm-hmm. episodes. Like, this is all you. Like, until Danny Masterson's gone, we're not renewing our subscriptions. Fired his ass. Done. So, as I said before, on a scale of one to Danny Masterson, how problematic is Danny Masterson? He's like 32 Danny Mastersons. He's increased by, I, you originally said 12, but he, after he went hearing, up by three times because I'm heated now. I'm all a heated. handwritten letter threatening your life? Who has the balls? <laughs> Unless you cl- clearly, obviously, it. have someone willing to cover something up for you. That's and a huge, nuts. another big important part of this is the lawyer that he hired is the lawyer. Bill Cosby used in Pennsylvania to get away from his rape accusations as well. And look how well that worked out for Bill Cosby. Oh, Lord. Well, this... Sandy Masterson, if you're listening, you are a disgusting fucking animal, and I have no respect for you, but thanks for being a part of that 70s show, I guess. And I'm all sorts of torn now because I'm going to be... I'm going to call myself out for having a crush on Hyde in the show. Didn't we all? I mean, I was talking to a good friend, Lucille, about this. She's like, wow, that actually explains a lot of the choices you made 
in high school it, and it, college. I like it, it did, I'm though. second time meeting you, but yeah, I, I agree. That definitely <laughs> has to say something, you know? It, it, ex- it explains a lot of the choices I made. So I'm trying not to feel too guilty because, of course, I didn't know about any of those things when I had this crush on him. But now I'm thoroughly disgusted. Danny, it's, I am disgusted. Yeah, I mean, and besides even to do the act, to then spend a decade and a half trying to cover it up like that. That's foul. You're better, off, you're better off eating your own shit right now because your name is already tarnished. It's over for it's you. Done. But uh, so yeah, now that we have explained the entire spilled scale all system, of the the boiling hot tea, we fresh now out you guys of, understand fresh out of the uh, when we're rating things that are problematic. That is why we are using the Danny Masterson scale. Yeah. So, but now I feel like that's almost too intense of a scale because can anything short of another rape be that problematic? I think as we go through things in the show, we'll see. But, it, like, he's at, keep in mind, he's at 32 Danny Masterson's. Okay. So, I mean, one. He himself is at 32 Danny right. Masterson's. Okay. All right. So, then getting back, now that we've gone off, I'm just, like, totally You're, you're totally mind-fucked, right? I'm mind-fucked right now. I'm having a hard Yo, time, like, and getting like, back to the point, which is, we were talking about women's place in the episode. Well, oh, the irony. <laughs> Uh, apparently there are fucking places to be choked out after they wake up mid-rape. Okay, that's so horrible. But however, how would you rate? The way that, so there's like two ways to look at it. I feel that as a person who was not around in the 70s at all, I can't really describe what it was like if it's factual, but I think there was a certain amount of honesty about the ways that women were thought of of like either you're the homemaker or you're the hot wife or you're the girl next door who's usually seen as harmless but like on the beautiful on the sly or you're the high school slut. Right, you're the high school cheerleader who's so annoying and doesn't care about anybody else like yeah. So I think in that way it kind of is accurate because women were not seen. We're definitely yeah. Obviously we are more than that, but I from my understanding of the 70s, the, what I've been spoon-fed is that when women's lib was happening, women's lib happened because those were the only options. Right, and I also feel like we'll eventually be able to expand on the fact of how cool it is that Donna's involved in the women's lib movement mm-hmm. in the show. But I think that for introduction-wise, I feel like everyone just had to be so outrageous so you understood the concept of that character. And mm-hmm. then, because as you notice, like especially in season two, like once it goes on, like you don't really... Like, they're still the same people, but they're not as annoying. Yeah. Besides Tover Grace again, I'm sorry. Tover Grace annoys the shit out of me. I don't even know how I watch eight seasons straight. Uh, well, he wasn't in it, number eight, was he? Seven seasons straight. He comes back for the last episode. Oh, that's true. You know, he left right after that taste. He didn't say bye to anybody. I heard that. He's a piece of shit. <sighs> and he didn't Man. even make a good venom. <laughs> <laughs> Spitting truth on the mic one and two. No, but really, like he sucks. But so I guess on the scale, I would it's problematic. I would probably put it at a four. I was gonna say five, so we're we're really yeah. we're vibing together. I'd right like now. a four or a five because I'm not happy about it, but it's also not. It's not stretched. It's not stretched. Right. I think that there is some honesty and truth to it that gets sort of addressed right. later on. That actually leads right into what our final 
the final part of every episode is going to be, which is going to be the winning burn. What was the sickest burn of the episode? Our burn of the week for episode one came when the gang was trying to figure out how they were going to pay the mechanic for the tickets and still get to the concert. Kelso says, obviously, Jackie's not going to the concert, but who else? And Eric says... Oh, I don't know. Jackie's date? Um, so Eric gets crowned for episode one for burn of the week with that hot slice burn he laid on Jackie and Kelso at the same time. That's a twofer. Burn! Love a twofer. Well, that's it for episode one, That 70s Pilot. Next week, we will talk about growing up, cassette tapes, coded racism, and awkward erections. See you next week. Thanks for listening to That 70s Showdown. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Louisa Rorschach. Our logo was designed by Annie Daly. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, thatshowdownpodcast.com. There you'll find show notes about every episode and links to our Spotify playlist. If you think our show is totally groovy, please tell your circle about it and rate us on iTunes and Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, too, at That70sShowdown. Bueller. Good. I'm glad we uh, turned it on. (laughs) That could have gone poorly.